This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. From street lights and solar flights to coal miners and corn farmers, we're looking at recent documentary films that bring human drama to the climate story. People from the mountains and stuff like that, like where I'm from, really had no one to have our back before. 16 years I've been dreaming of that. Thought of flight around the world with no fuel. Everybody wants to find the perfect place to be and there's all these national parks and all these places that people love and like the ocean and stuff and I'm like, after a place gets kind of tore up like this, who's loving it? Who's out there loving these broken places? With insights from the filmmakers. Our film is really about neighbor versus neighbor. We never wanted to make a David versus Goliath kind of story. Climate Conscious Films for the Holidays, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate change is sometimes called the anti-story because the end is uncertain and far in the future. But several recent documentaries tell climate-related stories with real human drama. On today's show, host Greg Dalton talks to directors and producers of four of these films, beginning in coal country. You cannot understand the complex people by only looking at the way they've been portrayed on television and movie screens. One must go to the mountains to drive these winding roads. The documentary Hillbilly, directed by Ashley York and Sally Rubin, is a personal and political journey into the heart of Appalachia, exploring media representations of rural people while showcasing the diversity of communities throughout the region. The film includes Ashley's visit to her Kentucky hometown to interview family members on Election Day 2016. Greg Dalton spoke to Hillbilly co-director Sally Rubin and began with this basic question. What is a hillbilly? That is the question that the film seeks to answer. Uh, having worked on this project for four and a half years, I would say the reclaimed definition of the word, which is what we seek to project in the movie, is somebody who is f usually from the mountains, who identifies with family, culture, storytelling, good food, good music, appreciating life. The film talks quite a bit about how popular perception of hillbillies was shaped by shows such as the one that I watched a lot growing up, Beverly Hillbillies. So how has Hollywood shaped our common perception of people in Appalachia? Well, Appalachia is a place that um, you know, Hollywood portrays it to be, and it is in truth fairly remote. Uh, it's, it's hard to get there. Coming from L.A., it takes a full day, sometimes more. Um, there's no direct flights into the heart of the coal fields. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a place that most people haven't been to, or most urban people, I should say, most people not from that region, haven't been there. So people rely on Hollywood and media depictions, um, both films and television, but also books, articles, postcards, um, to develop a sense of what people there are like. And from very early on, certainly from the 50s and 60s in Hollywood and even from much earlier, um, there's been an image that has come out of, you know, out of film and television um, that has depicted the hillbilly as one of sort of several archetypes. As Ashley and I, my co-director and I worked on the film, we were able to identify several key quote-unquote hillbilly archetypes that movies in Hollywood have really used. There's the ignorant hillbilly. So, of course, Beverly Hillbillies is a perfect example. There's the sociopathic barbarian, such as you would see in a film like Deliverance. The meth addict, 
like Pensatucky in Orange is the New Black. Um, you've got the Welfare Queen. Pensatucky also is an example of that. So there's those key archetypes, and Hollywood has sort of used those and recycled those images again and again and again. You can still hear that. And there's a point in the film that the people there uh, are not of value, so it's a good place to put a dirty energy operation such as coal. Uh, it's full of trash, so why not trash it, one of the people says. So, yep. so what's the connection between the hillbilly culture and coal? That's a really good question. And that, uh, you know, making that connection between hillbilly culture and coal and, and sort of making that point I mean, coal's central to the identity of the people there. Even if your parents don't work in coal, coal is in the lifeblood, it's in the history, it's in the veins of that entire region. Um, the region really was built on the backs of coal. They call it King Coal. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very complicated. Um, people there during the election, we were there filming, as you see in the movie, we were in eastern Kentucky filming in the heart of the coal fields the night of the election, the presidential election, and... People were very hopeful that President Trump could deliver on his promise to create jobs and um, keep coal alive in a climate where the fear is that the lifeblood is going away, not just temporarily, but for good. And how's that, how's that working out, the, the revival of coal that President Trump promised? Well, there's certainly been a pullback on a lot of the key laws there, um, a lot of the laws that protect for instance, the watersheds, there was there used to be a rule that you could only dump coal sludge within so many feet of a, a, a waterway. There has been a real change in some of those, but that hasn't brought back the jobs. The jobs are on their way out, and you do not see um, that promise sort of coming to fruition. And people there, I, I would say already, many of the folks in the coal fields are feeling somewhat disenchanted by that. I think when Trump said, we're going to bring back the jobs, we support coal. What's so important is that people there felt like he supports me. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, just having that validation, um, just being told that you matter when so many people, including, I dare say, but including Hillary Clinton, um, were saying in many ways that those people don't matter. They're all deplorables. We're going to eliminate coal jobs. You know, that sends a message that you don't matter. Right. There's one point in the film where one of the commentators is talking about uh, sort of the cultural politics of of people in coal country. On the left, there's this stereotype of viciousness that they're all kind of uh, poor and uneducated with crooked teeth. And on the right, that there's salt of the earth, white working class. That plays into our national politics, it seems. And you you got at that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, that's honestly possibly my favorite moment in the movie. It's just, that's Barbara Ellen Smith. She articulates that point so well. Their own behavior is precisely what people on the right <laughs> point to in enlisting white working class folks for very right-wing causes. You know, we never set out when we were making this film to 
criticize how the Democrats were running a national presidential campaign. Um, we started making this movie in fall of 2013 before Donald Trump was on anybody's horizons. Mm -hmm. We just were making a film about the history of hillbilly stereotypes um, in Hollywood. But then the election happened and so many angles and kind of depths got added to the film, including that point. And um, yeah, I think in many ways it's the most powerful takeaway for the movie. So do you see the argument that the left forgot about a lot of people? Democrats forgot about a, a lot of people in the in the interior part of the country and people in Appalachia being you know, perhaps first and foremost among that. Yeah, and this circles back to why I personally wanted to make the movie in the first place. I'm not from Appalachia. My mom's from the mountains of East Tennessee. So I have some personal connection there. My roots are based in middle-class, liberal New England. I'm from Boston. And I always hated, even as a teenager going way back, I hated the hypocrisy. I, I would go to parties and be talking to my liberal Boston friends who would never be caught dead saying the N-word um, or any other racial slang, um, you know, slangs about sexual orientation. But here they would throw around the terms poor white trash, redneck, and hillbilly. They were okay putting down poor white rural working class people. I always hated that. I, that hypocrisy always drove me crazy. And it, it drove me crazy in this past presidential election when I saw it happening again on a national scale where the stakes were really high. I want to see like what a girl could do, but I don't want Hillary, no. Well, when I run for president, you can all vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> Shelby, because I'll be a, I will be a humdinger. Tell me about Shelby and uh, her on election night and who she is. These are members of, of a family that voted for Obama and then Trump. Yeah, so Granny Shelby lives in um, central eastern Kentucky, and she's Ashley's grandmother. They've always been incredibly close. I think in many ways Granny was, was critical to raising Ashley. But she and her family members there in eastern Kentucky, in spite of having voted Democrat for most of their lives, actually went and registered as Republicans so they could vote for Trump. They Something called to them and clicked for them about who he was, what he was saying. Um, going back to what I said before, I think that they felt heard and acknowledged by him in a new way that they'd never felt before from a politician. They said, uh, Ashley's Uncle Bobby in the movie says, we've always been forgotten. And here's someone who's listening to us. So why not vote Trump? And yet there's still love in this family. Politics is not dividing that family. There's still love in that family. Yeah, that's part of what I love about that family and Ashley's relationship with her family. That's part of who Ashley is. Um, that family functions as a microcosm of what we would like to see in America. Mm. And of course, we're not so Pollyanna as to believe that tomorrow all Democrats and Republicans are going to go hug and make jokes and be super affectionate with each other. But gosh, I hope we I hope on some level that there can be a sense of humor and a sense of perspective about all this. And I, I really hope that the film can help to get people from both sides of the aisle thinking about each other's point of view, maybe talking a little bit, maybe laughing a little bit. I hope that's not too much to ask. Sure. 
So what's the future for uh, someone who's in the coal industry? I remember I interviewed uh, Maria Gano, who's a, a coal miner's daughter in Appalachia. Her son is working in the mines, but he is training to be an emergency medical technician to have a new career outside, you know, third generation coal worker trying to have a career outside of coal. What are the pathways, if any, for people to get out of coal if they see that it's a declining industry? That's a good question. Um, you know, the folks that we know who are working in the region, a lot of them are in education. Um, every community, no matter how small, no matter how remote, needs teachers, good teachers, people who are educated. Um, certainly, there's there are plenty of really wonderful universities throughout the region, so there's always higher education there. Um, you know, there's, of course, some tourism. I think one of the hopes is that there's just not going to continue to be such a kind of quote-unquote brain drain, this idea that anybody who's from Appalachia who's smart needs to leave in order to make something of themselves. There's a huge movement now in the region of people who are working to keep the smart, talented folks uh, there and let them work on you know movements around farming, sustainable farming and agriculture, wind energy, of course, um, you know, activism, there's just a huge, and the film hints at this movement, some of it is in there. Um, you see the Appalachian Media Institute portrayed, and they're a group of young media makers, some of them queer, who've come from the mountains, who are learning about making documentaries, how to tell their own stories. So yeah, there is a, there's a huge effort, both from insiders and to a certain extent outsiders in the region who are working to kind of create some kind of alternative economy there for people who can't sustain a career in coal anymore. Our hills are dying. Our water is being killed. Our Appalachia is being chopped and dozed and hauled away in those coal trains until nothing is going to remain except the spirit of Appalachia a spirit that can never be rubbed out, no matter how many machines rumble up its ridges. Appalachia and America, both in a crisis of conscience over the environment. Well, Sally Rubin, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on Climate One. All right, thanks so much. Sally Rubin, co-director of the 2018 documentary, Hillbilly. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about the oil boom in another rural community, and talks to the director of a film about saving the dark night sky. People living in the cities are lost in their busy lives without much care for the view of the stars. And I feel that our lives become less meaningful because we don't understand that we are part of something much bigger. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One, and we're talking about recent documentary films that tell the human side of the climate story. We go now to one of the most rural communities in the country, Trenton, North Dakota. I wanted to be back. I wanted to be around family. I wanted to appreciate this open space that I had and not most people get to have. And I came back and all hell broke loose. My Country No More, directed and produced by Rita Baghdadi and Jeremiah Hammerling, tells the story of a new American oil boom and the ruptured community left in its wake. Greg Dalton spoke to Rita and Jeremiah about the film and the people it profiles. Rita, tell us about Callie Ryder. She's a school dietitian who's trying to protect the land where she grew up. Yeah, so Callie, um, she went away to college and she was ill. She tore ACL and she had a surgery. She had to move home. And around that time, that's when the boom 
started. And so she moved home because she felt, you know, she needed to be closer to family to, in order to get better. And it kind of turned out that her community needed her just as much as she needed her community. Um, because, you know, when all this started, not a lot of people were speaking out against it. So... And what's Kelly trying to do? Let's set the stage here. She's trying to protect a church from uh, being in the shadow of, a, of an oil refinery. Yeah. So the church land um, is owned by the Ani family, Dwight, Dwight Ani, and um, his father passed it down to him. And there was a stipulation that said as long as the church was um, active within the community, that it would, it would stay with the community. Um, so because, you know, oil boom the price of the land, Dwight sold all the land around the church for a diesel refinery. So Kelly wanted to, you know, make sure that it wasn't going to be, like you said, overshadowed by a diesel refinery or even bulldozed to make room for a diesel refinery. Um, so she's really fighting against the the land around the church. Jeremiah, you have a personal connection to the church and even indirectly to, to Kelly. Yeah, I was actually born around the same area where um, Callie and her family grew up. Um, and my dad was the pastor at that church and at another church in that area during the 80s. And it was a tough time out there. So he, he got to know the community quite well um, while I was just a child. And then, you know, as we moved later, kept in touch with them. Um, so when we heard that the oil boom um, had happened, the most recent one, um, kind of in the late aughts, you know, 2008, 2009, we wanted to get out and see what was happening, and uh, we had been looking for a way to tell stories um, in that in those spaces. I think that when you get to rural places, it's so vast and empty. And then when you talk about industrializing those spaces rapidly, whether that's an oil boom or other sort of industrial interests that can sometimes feel like they're popping up overnight, you know, a lot of people like from urban areas sometimes can't quite wrap their heads around it. They're like, well, you know. There's so much room. It seems like a good place to do it, you know. But initially, that was what drew us to the story. Callie, Callie called my dad, and she was like, the whole town's going up in flames, and somebody's got to come out here and see this. And so I think, you know, the film became a kind of a interesting bearing witness to seeing a rural space slowly, the domino effect of just one piece of land being rezoned and these you know small fights with county commissioners and neighbors against neighbors and and you could just see over time how a rural area could become an industrial zone i know some people are are you know really tied to the land they don't like to see this happening to the land but that just you know business in america you, you have to look to me at the big benefit one of the interesting characters is Ruben Valdez, who uh, is a Native American yeah. who gives someone a ride to North Dakota, uh, who offers to pay him gas and a job when you get there. Uh, so tell us more about Ruben. Very early on when we were there, which was you know, around 2010, in the winter of 2010, uh, there had just been a, huge, a, a number of huge reports on you know, national television, radio, that, you know, of course, this is after the Great Recession, 2008, a lot of people were out of work, and all of a sudden, boom, oil hits in North Dakota, and all these people, out-of-work tradesmen, were flooding to the area. Now, what they didn't say on those reports was that there was nowhere to live. <laughs> so, over practically overnight, you have a quarter of a million people that are showing up looking for work, but with nowhere to stay. So, we had heard that, you know, there were, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people staying at the Walmart parking lot. And sure enough, we go out there, and I'm very cold night, like 20 below, and we're, we're all freezing. Of course, we didn't have to stay in the, the Walmart parking lot. And 
we, we start interviewing people and before we leave and we're absolutely freezing, we bump into this guy, Ruben, and there was something about his spirit that we were like, oh man, this guy is really interesting and just, you know, just this vibrant guy. And we had no idea at that time that we'd be following him for five years. And, you know, he, in a way, I, I mean, it, it sounds harsh, but I think he would agree. He kind of became a canary in the coal mine a little bit where, you know, he, he, he was the workforce. And so there was a time where he was homeless and he was down and then he, the, then the work hit and then he was, you know, making six figures and doing great. And then, you know, what we document in the film is how, you know, booms go boom. And what happens after, you know, it's bound to be a bust. And so, you know, later in the film, Ruben's unemployed and now he's doing okay. But, you know, it was, it was interesting to see both sides, to see, see it from the community that had been there for a while. And then the new community, which is part of this, you know, influx of the workforce, the fabric of that infrastructure, that the human infrastructure that kind of makes it all work. Yeah. I mean, Ruben, we love Ruben because he's so positive, but also because he, he really represents like, uh, the question we were sort of asking is like, what are we willing, what and who are we willing to sacrifice, um, in the name of progress? And, you know, Ruben really represents that, the sort of human sacrifice of progress, because you, you sort of offer your body up to being, you know, a miner, whether it's uranium mining in the seventies in Wyoming, or it's, you know, fracking for oil and gas in North Dakota in the 2000s. And, you know, it really takes a toll on you. And his health has really suffered because of it. Um, so he's sort of the human, you know, human sacrifice for that. And Spin out a little bit that theme of progress, because it's a central tension in the film is what it, progress is, new jobs, new construction, right. not keeping things the way they are. It's still a pretty conservative area, and they're very pro-oil, <laughs> you know, for the most part, I would say. Um, I think that might have, you know, people's opinions might have changed a lot now, having lived through this last boom. And even now, as oil is coming back, making a comeback, and there's more production, more wells are coming back. Um, not overnight. Now they're talking about slowing down production because I think they realized that it's not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable. Part of the reason that North Dakota blew up was the regulations were so minimal, at least initially. I mean, the, the Bakken play or that they call it like that whole area this which is a huge area covers part of uh, eastern montana and canada but um there were just wasn't nearly as much attention on those areas because they weren't uh, north dakota was a spot that was unregulated which is partially why it blew up overnight i mean one of the things that we try to play and hopefully it's not heavy-handed I, I think you know in the film is that really it is an open-ended question i mean what is the idea of progress like how i mean we do use oil whether it's modes of transportation or the clothes on our back or you know, other forms Food. of infrastructure. Um, yeah. and so, I mean, it's, it, it's a valid question what, you know, and, and if we're going to continue this, you know, how do we, how do we segue? How do we find alternative means of, of, you know, cleaner energy, et cetera. If we could go back, we would. And, and if I knew it was going to turn out that way, we, we certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have uh, sold that land for, for that kind of purpose. Roger Beers is a farmer who sold some land for what he thought was and his wife thought was going to be an ethanol plant right. which they considered to be continuing to support farming turning corn into fuel and then he has some regrets yeah yeah i mean in a way here's a guy who you know part of the family Callie's uncle um just a modest hard-working guy who's been in the area for a long time and you know thinks he's doing something that's going to support local agriculture now, whether or not you think ethanol is a very great idea is, is, you know, neither here nor there. But the point being that it would have supported, like, crops that they could have had. And, you know, flash forward, and this turns into a rail port, which turns into a reason to say, hey, this is how we could offload oil. This is where. And then 
ultimately it becomes one of the six access points for the Dakota Access Pipeline. So when Standing Rock's happening, you know, 250 some odd miles upriver, it's all very quiet and this is where the pipe is one of the places that it's starting. And so uh, serendipity would not be the right word, but we certainly weren't planning on being able to show how these tiny decisions could lead into something that had at least captured, you know, the global consciousness at, at that point. You didn't talk to an energy supplier. I wonder, you know, Ruben, you said, is sort of the voice of the person who yeah. gets a job by going up there and does pretty well for a while, and then he gets laid off. So I'm curious, where's the voice of the energy supplier saying, hey, our country runs on this stuff, we need this? Is, was that intentional, or did they not want to talk? No. Mostly they don't want to talk. Yeah, We weren't that concerned because... We were like, well, our film is really about neighbor versus neighbor. We never wanted to make a David versus Goliath film because that story's been told. And, you know, our film does have elements of that, but we wanted to make more of a David versus David because really the the people that are fighting for this refinery are local people, like na the neighbors, like Dwight and Steve. They live there and they want the refinery and their next door neighbors don't. And so we wanted to make more of a neighbor you know, not a big oil producer versus the little guy kind of story. And at the end, the, tell us, the church is in place, the refinery wasn't built. Where, where does it stand? Yeah, so they they continue to try to build the refinery, um, and they've actually tried to build that second rail port more than once. You know, they continue to drill out there, but the church still stands. Um, Callie still plays music at that church, and, uh, you know, the, the neighbors still go. And some people have cashed out, made some money. Other people feel like their town's been spoiled. Yep. I mean, there are people that really do believe that that refinery is definitely going to get built. It's just a matter of time because they, they've already laid all the groundwork in terms of permitting. And only time will tell, I think. We're putting pipelines in the ground. We're improving what we're doing. Yep. You're not even looking far enough ahead to see that. No. Progress is going to come. Look to the future, guys. A clip from the 2018 documentary, My Country No More, directed by Rita Baghdadi and Jeremiah Hammerling. You're listening to Climate One. Rural North Dakota is still a great place to see the Milky Way and the millions of other stars in the night sky. But in many cities, light pollution increasingly prevents people from seeing beyond our own celestial orb. 80% of North American and, and European populations no longer live someplace where they can even faintly see the Milky Way from their homes. The mission of the International Dark Sky Association is to create a world without light pollution. Those are excerpts from Saving the Dark, directed and produced by Srira Murali, which shows the effects of light pollution on astronomy, human health, wildlife, and beyond. The film also shows the work of nonprofits fighting to preserve dark night skies. Greg Dalton spoke to Srira Murali and asked him to define his subject. What is light pollution? Light pollution is any light that goes where it's not supposed to go. It's any excessive light. Uh, fighting light pollution doesn't really mean you gotta turn off all the lights. The dark sky enthusiasts and the dark sky advocates are fine with people lighting up for Christmas for a month and then just turning it off, just being mindful of the environment and how it affects everything around us. And a lot of your film is about these dark sky enthusiasts who are uh, concerned about the the loss of being able to see see the stars, uh, it's not something that city dwellers think a lot about. What's what's being lost if there's some light pointing toward the sky? What are we losing? 
the night sky reminds us of our place in the universe the universe gives us perspective it gives us a connection a sense of uh, belonging people living in the cities are lost in their busy lives without much care for the view of the stars and i don't really blame them because they don't really know what's what's uh, up in the sky and i feel that our lives become a less meaningful because we don't understand that we are part of something much much bigger Part of the film uh, is about LED lights. You know, most light bulbs, incandescent light bulbs, Thomas Edison would recognize. And yet LED lights uh, are thought of as an energy saving, practical innovation to reduce greenhouse gases, reduce energy loads. Are they bad? They are the bane and boon of light pollution, uh, LEDs uh, to put in a way. About a decade ago leds of very high color temperatures the 4000 5000 kelvin were the only ones that were uh, efficient and economical but these leds of uh, really high color temperature called the blue light is very harmful not just to our eyes uh, but to wildlife and it suppresses the secretion of melatonin the hormone responsible for our sleep wake cycle so but in the last couple of years technology the led technology has grown so fast that now a 2700 at 3000 kelvin led light bulb is as efficient as a higher color temperature one so if the right color temperature use and if it's shielded it can help the not disrupt the nighttime environment in fact san francisco just just did that they changed most of their uh, street lights from sodium vapor to dark sky friendly leds and people have been liking it so far often the concern is about safety uh so there's uh, uh one person in the film talks about adaptive controls kind of smart buildings that where lights turn off when people are not there they turn on if someone's around so is it also possible that technology can regulate the use of lights so they're not always on yeah it definitely in uh, this is example in tucson they did a retrofit and they changed all the lighting to dark sky friendly lighting but they also dimmed the light reduced the luminosity by 60% after uh, 11 o'clock and people did not even notice the difference so there's a lot of energy savings and it's not just li- about the street lighting with all these lights indoors that that are on for no reason so when you have adaptive control they say that you can save more than 70% of uh, the energy it's dark up here You might have noticed that when you're camping if you have to get up in the night. Oh, it's dark, huh? We don't have street lights. We don't have malls. We don't have shopping centers and all that. We just have a lot of nature, don't we? There's uh, parts of the film that talk about impacts on on a species and it's not just human impacts of light. How does the light that we're creating affect bees and bats and butterflies? there's so much uh, wildlife out there that uh, that evolved to this day life uh, cycle for billions of years and in the last 100 years we've disrupted this nighttime uh, environment uh, millions of birds die each year colliding into the brightly lit buildings and uh, thousands of turtles in florida die each year um, due to the artificial lighting behind the beach and we're just starting to learn all these how wildlife is impacted uh, and bees uh, uh, and all these pollinators they are deterred by the artificial lighting and scientists have found that it affects pollination by about 60 percent. 
And yet for the turtles, there are types of lights and minor modifications to offer oceanfront properties that can solve the problem. Yeah, the Sea Turtle Conservancy in Florida, they've had a lot of uh, success uh, in, the, in the past uh, decade. Uh, so there are certain types of LEDs uh, that uh, do not affect the, the turtles. Uh, these LEDs are amber in color and they are uh, shielded and very close to the placed very close to the ground so that the light does not go towards the the beach and turtles when they come on shore to nest or these turtles when they uh, hatch and go towards the ocean they for some reason do not see the amber light and it does not really disturb them and some people think not knowing how this amber light looks like, they think that uh, they lose their sense of security or safety. But in fact, you can see much better in uh, sea turtle friendly lighting. People often don't realize that uh, excessive lighting can be a bad thing. It can create a lot of glare and discomfort. Lighting is branding in lots of situations for uh, retail establishments, storefronts. Uh, it's a part of the film that looks at gas stations and how bright gas stations are. And uh, what's the solution? I mean, at public education, do you think there ought to be rules that have limited lighting because of the pollution inf- effects? You mentioned you know, what Tucson and San Francisco and others have done to kind of reduce the city deployment of of light at certain times of LED lights. That's different than telling voters you can't light your gas station to a certain point or you can't light your storefront. So the International Dark Sky Association, they they are the nonprofit uh, based in Tucson, Arizona. They uh, educate the public and policymakers on the issue of light pollution. They, one of their programs is the International Dark Sky Places Program that identifies the last remaining dark sky landscapes uh, around the globe. They have about 80, 85 dark sky places around the world. And one of the things that come with the, the dark sky places is all the lighting ordinances. So not just, the say, the national park or this uh, national monument that, that makes sure all this, are the lighting are dark sky friendly, but also the communities and the businesses around around the dark sky reserve. One of the biggest successes recently is uh, the designation of the dark sky reserve in Idaho. It is a land of about 1,400 square miles, and it's a huge achievement because they had to convince and get the buy-in of all the communities and the businesses around the place, and they also see it as a, a, a good uh, way for their business because, because it attracts a lot of astro-tourism. So there's a business driver for that. And then there's a part in there that talks about how popular the night sky programs are at national parks. But in a city, it's kind of hard to ask a business to unilaterally disarm, to light my store at a lower level and the clothes at another store are going to look more illuminating and and I'm going to lose business. Why should I go first? I I don't think we'll... Not, not at least in the next few decades, be able to fight light pollution uh, in the cities or be able to see the stars. It's, it's a very tough problem. Um, but at least it, it's, it'll be a good start if the local municipalities and the local governments uh, and cities uh, uh, start using these lights. And uh, it's going to be tough. Uh, most businesses use light as an uh, attractant. Uh, people mm-hmm. turn towards uh, light, it, it attracts them. It's going to be tough uh, for the businesses. They have to have some kind of incentive. For example, in Florida, the Sea Turtle Conservancy got a lot of uh, money from the Gulf oil spill, and all the lighting retrofits are free. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these businesses need some incentive. And the Dark Sky Association, they've been doing a pretty good job, and the Sea Turtle Conservancy have been doing a pretty good job. And I feel that half the battle for light pollution uh, will be won when 
people go these starry night skies for themselves and it is up to individuals to ask for those changes. Sri Ram Murali, director producer of Saving the Dark. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks what it was like to make a film about the first solar-powered flight around the world. We wanted this to be very experiential. Um, we wanted to really put you in the cockpit and put you on the team, showing a group of people working hard for over a decade to try to come up with a solution. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One, and we're looking at recent documentaries that focus on the human drama of fighting climate change. In Point of No Return, two pilots risk their lives flying around the world in a solar-powered plane that's as delicate as a t-shirt. Solar Impulse 2 is ready to embark on its ambitious round-the-world journey. Bertrand Picard and André Boschberg will be taking turns to fly the solar-powered plane around the world for the very first time. Quinn Kennelly and Noel Dockstetter, the filmmakers behind Point of No Return, tracked the unfolding drama of this audacious zero-fuel flight, both on the tarmac and at Mission Control. Greg Dalton spoke to Quinn and Noel about the film and asked them about the pilots and their journey. Tell us about the two main characters and their, their ambitions and their egos. Introduce us to Bertrand Picard and André Borschberg. Quinn? Sure. Um, they're very... Uh, Interesting people, uh, very different. Uh, well, I'll start with Bertrand first. He comes from a long line of um, scientific explorers in his family. His grandfather was the first yeah. Auguste Picard to um, fly to the stratosphere in a hot air balloon and see the curvature of the Earth with his own eyes. And yeah. his father was the first to go to the Mariana Trench in a submarine, um, Jacques Picard, in the 60s. So he had, to begin with, a huge kind of burden on his shoulders. He also flew, Bertrand flew around the Earth in a hot air balloon for 21 days. Non-stop. Non-stop, and he was yeah. on the cover of National Geographic. Um, so he you know, wanted to be an explorer from day one, um, but he also wanted to do something with purpose. You know, His father was into you know, science, of course, not just exploration. And so when Bertrand finished that hot air balloon expedition, he had this idea, like, he, he almost ran out of fuel on What's that next? flight. <laughs> and, you know, he, 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 it was stressful. And he said, what if I fly around the world without any fuel? So that kind of came out of this hot air balloon expedition. Um, and so he had this, this dual purpose of wanting to explore, but also wanting to do something with major impact um, and show the world what might be possible without fuel. Yeah, and so he has this legacy of these these pioneers. What what can he do that his grandfather and father didn't do? And then there's then there's the fighter pilot. Exactly, Andre, who had been in the Swiss Air Force for 25 years. Um, interestingly, also he's a yogi, and he practices yoga and meditation, um, which plays a huge role in this um, film because. It's a solo flight. Each of these two pilots have to take turns flying this um, solar airplane around the world. And that means potentially a flight for up to five days alone in the cockpit. And so they each had to really mentally train to do this. 
Bertrand also, um, might I add, is a psychiatrist by profession, not just an explorer. Um, so he had this psychological dimension. He uses self-hypnosis to fall into a deep relaxation, not deep sleep, because that would be dangerous. Um, and Andre um, uses yoga and meditation to do the same thing, and they had to only sleep for 20-minute periods at a time. Um, over a 24-hour period, that might add up to three hours. But uh, try doing that for five days straight, and, uh, you know, that really separates, uh, you know, the heroes from the rest of us. That's amazing. I didn't quite get that depth of their, their background from the film. But it explains one point, uh, Noel, where uh, they're actually uh, one of them make, makes a mistake and says admits yeah, on flight two from India. So pick us up there. And, and there you have these two people who are doing this, pushing the boundaries of human possibility and technology, and yet they, their egos come into play, yet they check their egos. or they, they, you know, At one point, he realizes, Bertrand says, I'm not the best pilot. Well, in many ways, ego you know, has to be part of the story because you know, anyone who's been through a really difficult adventure, particularly an adventure where you know, they, they have had to think for a long time about how much are they going to risk their own life for this dream. And the dream is both personal, but it's also both uh, in terms that they feel like they're doing something for a, a greater purpose. Hello, Captain Picard. Good afternoon, Mr. Secretary General. I speak to you from the cockpit of Solar Impulse in the middle of the Pacific, flying on solar power. Tell us, Quinn, about that Pacific crossing, which is one in many ways kind of the dramatic climax of the film. So everything builds up to this crossing of the Pacific Ocean. Um, five days, five nights minimum, alone in a fragile airplane that you can poke your finger through that could uh, break apart in um, mild turbulences. And it's an unheated and unpressurized cabin. The pilot has to go from 5,000 feet to 28,000 feet every day on oxygen for half of that time. So it's extremely strenuous for the pilot who d does it. In this case, it is Andre. Um, and dangerous. And they had never actually proven um, that they could fly, this particular plane could fly through the night. Everything is on the edge of the engineering and what was possible. And so they expected maybe 10% of batteries left every morning at sunrise, which, as we all know, having cell phones, you know, when we start getting in the red, mm. um, <laughs> we start getting a little nervous and looking for the, the wall plug. Um, but they didn't have that. They had no extra fuel reserves on board. Um, and really, it would mean, uh, you know, ditching into the ocean, the airplane shattering into thousands of pieces and a pilot in a life raft for a few days until a, a cargo ship found them. Quite dramatic. And so they divert to Japan because, and then they finally make it to uh, Seattle. So, Noel, tell us a little bit about the plane. You know, she, uh, Quinn described it's very light. It's basically featherweight. But tell us, you know, it, it charges during the day and then the batteries run down at night. Tell us about the plane. Yeah, basically they have as much surface area as they can do without being too uh, exposed to the elements. It still has to fly. Wingspan of a 747. Wingspan of a 747. And they're getting to the point where if it gets too much bigger because it's so light, you know, that makes it unstable. They sacrifice stability for efficiency, basically. The weight of a car. Yeah, well, it's, so. <laughs> it's just the most efficient plane probably ever built, but also maybe the most vulnerable plane that ever crossed an ocean. So... In order to make that work, they needed as m to gather as much sun as they could 
and over the oceans, of course, they can't land whenever they want. So they have to know they can make it through the night. So they gather all the energy they can. They climb during the day. They're climbing to altitude. And then at about sunset, they're at max altitude of about 28,000 feet, and then they start to descend. So when they take off, they want a, as much of a full charge as they can. So they can't plug it into the wall. That would be cheating. There would be no record for a solar mm -hmm. flight around the world, although we joked about it a lot because the plug was always right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they would take it out into the sunshine for a while and uh, let it sit on the runway to charge up. And, of course, they have to be very careful there, too, because too much sun will toast the, the, the cells. And if you burn one cell, because all the cells are connected, you've kind of blown the lot. It's like Christmas tree lights. If yeah, one yeah. goes out, then the whole thing is shot. That's yeah. Like, you know, it's their baby. And, and they've nursed this thing for 13 years, both from a technological point of view. But these engineers, you know, the way they touch it is just so careful. They're just everything about it. Because they know that it, it wouldn't take much to be the end of the adventure. And in many ways, the plane had a persona for them. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the plane was not just nuts and bolts and all of that. It was something that they had poured so much of their hearts into, so much of their hopes, their dreams, their courage, everything that you can only imagine that when it took off and it goes out over that ocean how they're feeling. We saved the project by deciding not to return to Japan. On the other hand, you have some of the engineers who are so pissed off because we did not follow their recommendation. They want to leave the project, and I don't know what will happen after Hawaii. Quinn, one thing that isn't in the film, that is in a lot of documentaries, is a lot of statistics and figures, and there's no kind of, uh, you know, shame or guilt about people who are flying it. So tell us about the connection of, you know, what's really motivating them. The, the clean energy and climate change is clearly a backdrop here, and it's motivating them to take these tremendous risks. Yeah, we, we set out sort of not to do that as, as filmmakers. I mean, we talked about it, and we said, mm -hmm. how much do we want to put that in? Um, we wanted this to be very experiential. Um, we wanted to really put you in the cockpit and put you on the team, um, showing a group of people working hard for over a decade to try to come up with a solution and show what we can do in the air, as Bertrand says, we can do on the ground. They wanted to sh inspire people around the world as they touched down in all these cities and had um, meetings with school children in every country and, and, and were constantly on a podium kind of communicating their message and talking to CNN and BBC and everybody um, that all of these energy efficiencies in the air. They had um, electric motors that were 97% efficient. They had extremely um, lightweight and energy efficient insulation like none other on the planet that's now being employed into um, refrigerators. Mm. Um, you know, very thin solar cells and carbon fiber, you, you name it. All of these things we can do in our cars, in our homes, in our daily lives to, you know, lessen our carbon footprint, to collaborate, come together and get as as Bertrand says, get off, you know, your, your seat and do something. Right. And I've, I interview a lot of uh, climate evangelists who admit that their carbon sin is flying around on airplanes and aviation is thought to be kind of out of reach, maybe biofuels. And yet Andre says, Noel, at, at the end of the film, 
you know, 50 passenger uh, airplanes in 10 years running on batteries. Yeah, it, it is uh, every trip potentially is kind of a guilt trip. <laughs> so <laughs> right. uh, that's true. But the good news is electricity is y- you can leave climate change even out of the political argument or whatever you want to do. You know, we were in certainly in middle America and going through the birthplace of aviation. You know, we we were in Tulsa and we were, you know, crossing the area where where human ingenuity figured out how to get us airborne in the first place. And, you know, there's a lot of people there that may not be sold on the science of climate change. And, you know, fair enough, it's not exact yet. But they certainly appreciated that plane. They certainly appreciated the ingenuity of an electric engine. They appreciated the fact that it didn't throw off heat like a bad radiator. And um, they appreciated that the engineers and the work that went into that, you know, we're, we're crossing the heartland of craftspeople and, and common sense. And it appealed to them in a way that maybe other environmental initiatives wouldn't. And the thing is, of course, it's better for the environment without CO2 emissions, but it's also quieter around, you know, there's noise pollution around airports, and then also um, potentially cheaper to fly from, you know, San Francisco to LA, or um, we were just in New Zealand, you know, Wellington to Auckland or whatever, um, on, you know, smaller flights. These are not 747s right away until we have major... um, uh, revolutions in battery technology, but it's it's certainly in the next few decades it, these planes will be taking you know commuter small commuter flights around the world. You've both done some of the doomsday uh, documentaries. This was a, a feel you know more optimistic human. Yes, we can do this. Uh, yeah, we were ready for that. <laughs> ready for that. Yeah. So how are you feeling after after uh, doing you know extreme ice survey and other things? How does this one make you feel about our hopes for crack on the climate challenge? Yeah. Well, I mean, those were great films to work on as well. Um, but uh, as I sort of mentioned before, this was exciting to us in a different way, in that it was really. Um, potentially inspiring to people because it's showing people doing something. I think we can all easily get overwhelmed by the weight of the problem in front of us, particularly climate change. It is such a massive problem on a global scale. It requires so much um, innovation and collaboration, you know, globally, but then on, on all these different levels, on the human individual level, but on a governmental level and then pan-governmental level. Um, so it's daunting. Um, and so I think this story you know, was refreshing in a way to look at people doing stuff. But also it was a real adventure, like a real 21st century adventure where we had no idea how it was going to turn out. And we had to kind of take the plunge with them as filmmakers, not knowing if the plane was going to make it two legs to India, Um, whether we'd have a film in the end, it could have ended in tragedy. We had no idea. And that's kind of a new type of filmmaking for us where this really could have ended in many different ways. It's fantastic. (laughs) I mean, you live for it as documentary makers. And, you know, Andre said it towards the end when he said, you know, we can talk about it a lot, but if you don't do something, the world will dictate to you, not the other way around. And it's quite simple. Noel Dockstetter and Quinn Keneally. 
the filmmakers behind Point of No Return, the story of the first solar-powered flight around the world. We also heard about preserving the night sky in Saving the Dark, neighbors living through the North Dakota oil boom in My Country No More, and the myths and realities of life in the Appalachian coalfields in Hillbilly. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.